Okie dokie. Okay, here we are. I think we are live. Welcome to Cannabis Marketing Live, um, where we talk about strategies for your cannabis brand or retail business. Today, we have Jamie Pearson joining us, and I am actually going to read her bio because there's too much in it for me to remember. So let me bring this up real quick. Okay, Jamie Pearson uh, is a renowned leader in the cannabis sector with over a decade of experience. Twice recognized by High Times as one of the most influential women in cannabis, she boasts deep ties to the industry. Fluent in German, Jamie has 30 years in global real estate across three continents. She's an advisory board member for Ellison Reigns, Celotex, I think I'm pronouncing that right, uh, Lift & Co., and Alpen Group. As the founder of New Holland Group, she offers expertise in various business areas, including international development and financial turnarounds. Before this, Jamie was the president and CEO of Bang Inc., a top cannabis edible brand, expanding its reach globally. She also served as Bang's vice chairman and a sought-after speaker in areas like IP licensing, global expansion, and leadership. Um, that is a lot of things that you have done, Jamie. Did I? I'm, I'm old. <laughs> oh, oh, is that it? Okay, fair yeah, enough. Lots of years to fill with stuff. Lots of years to fill. So, yeah. um, and uh, you know, and Jamie and I have spoken many times in the past uh, at lots of conferences. I've gotten a lot of good insights from her. Um, let's start with the topic, which is global expansion. Um, mm -hmm. I think you know, for our business, we work primarily with U.S. companies. We have done some work in the U.K., a little bit in Asia. But largely, um, I'd like to joke about the U.S. industry as operating in 35 countries all by itself, uh, because each state is different. But you're taking things off to Europe and other places. Um, give us just like a high level. What does global expansion mean for cannabis brands, specifically for companies in the U.S. today? So um, for companies, it's different than for brands, um, just like it is in the U.S., there are a lot of similarities when you're crossing borders. Uh, so what I think it basically means is if you've got a product or a company that's performing well uh, stateside and you think that's a big opportunity over there in Europe and the Europeans or the South Americans um, in those different countries are going to want access to my product or to my brand, depending on whether you're a company or a brand, um, then you know, companies and brands start looking at taking that leap instead of expanding across a state border, they look at going into uh, different countries. And what would be some some initial things to think about as a brand that's considering, how do you even start to think about being ready versus not ready? What are, what are like some big topics to think about um, for a company that's like, should I even consider this uh, given the stage that I'm at? Well, first, let's um, let's just set a parameter here that we're going to talk specifically about brands and knowing that if we talk about some of the larger companies that are in um, in the middle of international expansion, uh, they consider themselves brands, Cureleaf, GTI, Trueleaf. Um, but let's just talk about taking um, an individual product. I think it would be easier to do that at a micro level. Um, I think about some of the great brands that exist in cannabis right now. And if you were going to move them anywhere outside of the U.S., I think the biggest thing you have to figure out is supply chain. And my recommendation is always you sort of start from the shelf and work backwards because we've all seen a lot of people who can grow excellent cannabis. And then once they have it, they're like, now what do I do with it? Uh, and you really need to do that differently. You need to do that starting from, you know, the sale backwards to the product. So you got to go find what are the customers looking for? What are the holes in the market? What is a niche that you might fill? Um, and then, you know, and I talk to people that approach me a lot about, I want to go to Germany or I want to go. No, you're back. I don't know what happened, but you're, uh, you're back online now. And we're back. Okay. Um, so the people that approach me that want to do that expansion, the first thing I usually ask them is, do you have um, experience or a team 
that has already done cross-border expansion, whether it's crossing a state border, maybe into, into Canada or from Canada into the US, but do you have a team that really understands how to do that? Because I wouldn't recommend that someone make that leap on the international level where you're contending with things like different currencies and different languages and different cultures uh, before you actually have a, a expansion strategy dialed in and, and really buttoned up. So on that topic, you know, inside the U.S., generally you need to create, you know, manufacture the product inside of the state borders. The brand itself can move across state borders, but, um, and I know that the rules are a little different for hemp, and I and I, there is some movement of stuff across borders. But what does it look like today? You you can't. Can you move products physically across borders? If so, which ones can you move them across? Uh, across international borders. And international borders. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. There are. There's a huge import export market in the international world, and as we know, uh, it just was uh, announced that. The, the latest statistic, it used to be that Germany was the largest importer of cannabis. Now it's Israel. Um, so Israel took the top spot. Australia took the second position and Germany's in the third position. And they're importing a lot of flour. Um, so flour specifically, then it needs to be um, put through the process of what indiv the individual countries require. So in Germany, for example, they do a lot of irradiation uh, you're not allowed to have anything um, foreign, uh, let's call it a any kind of a microbial problem or it's a zero tolerance. So you basically see a lot of that flower getting irradiated. And, you know, there's a lot of controversy about whether irradiated flower has the same uh, potency and the same um, entourage effect. But yes, there is a lot of import export activity going on internationally as far as Finished goods, not so much because you got to, um, how do you get that finished good through that country's process? You really do need to manufacture it on site. Okay, so you've got the bulk product and it, where is it getting imported from? Oh, well, Canada imported or exported a lot of um, flowers, a lot of exports coming actually out of Australia, out of New Zealand, out of Colombia. Um, so imagine where you see a medical market that's legal, um, two things have to happen. The country that's receiving the cannabis has to have import allowed and the country that is sending the cannabis has to have export allowed. And those two countries have to have some sort of an agreement that the product coming between the two countries is allowed to be moved. So it's not just a matter of Germany allows imports, Colombia allows exports, boom, you've got business. Colombia and Germany have to allow that to happen between those two countries. So what you'll see happen a lot is companies will export to Portugal and Portugal is kind of an import hub. And then they'll go through the process of making the products the way they're supposed to be for EU um, regulations. And then from uh, EU country to EU country, it's quite a bit easier. So then you've got the product marked as EU, and then it can go where it needs to go. But I want to make a distinction um, because I do think that there's some confusion right now. Uh, there isn't adult use cannabis in Europe at all, other than in the pilot programs. So the one thing people don't realize is that European cannabis on the legal side, of course, there's a robust illicit market. Um, but it's pharma. No, oh, we've lost Jamie again for a moment here. Oh, and you're back. You know what it is? I think we were supposed to have commercial breaks. Um, on my end or on your end? I, I'm not sure. I, maybe it's Zoom, but um, yeah. we were. But you were saying that it's all medical in um, in Europe. Is that medical is not in Europe or in South America like medical is here? So. In the US, we put an air quote around medical because what medical basically means is there are some true medical states uh, like Florida where you've got to go get a doctor's prescription. You can't, it's not about uh, pot, it's about medicine. But in the majority, really, and including Florida, 
it's an air quote medical program where you're not running to your local CVS and picking up a finished cannabis product. You are going to a dispensary and you, you know, the prescription process is a little bit different than the normal prescription process in a medical market in Europe. That's not the case in Europe. It is a straight up pharmaceutical model. The doctor has to give you a prescription the prescription has to be filled by a pharmacist. Insurance will cover those uh, prescriptions. That's another whole conversation in Europe um, and in the medical markets in South America. It's, it's also true. Okay. So backing up to um, getting a, let's talk about getting a finished product on the shelf in Germany, for example. Let's say I'm here in the US. I have Jake's pre roll brand, which is not a brand, but we'll just say it is for now. Um, okay. Do I um, do I try to figure out the bulk product uh, in Canada and get it shipped to Portugal and then work with the manufacturer there, or do you work with the manufacturer in Portugal and then they figure out the bulk product? Um, Are you is Jake's pre-roll in, intended to be used in the medical program or intended to be part of an adult use pilot program? Well, I don't know. You're the expert. Which one should I do? <laughs> uh, well, and that's what you would need to do as a perfect example is find out, okay, well, I want to do business in Germany. I want to sell Jake's pre-roll in Germany. Okay. A, are pre-rolls allowed? Um, mm, not really. Mm, there's some gray area. Um, okay. The adult use program in Germany doesn't exist yet. The rules haven't come out yet, but you can go to Switzerland or you can go to the Netherlands and do one of those two pilot programs if you want to have pre-rolls and then you got to determine whether or not pre-rolls are allowed in those pilot programs. The Swiss pilot program is pretty liberal. Um, they're actually wanting the companies that have been approved for their pilot program to do, first of all, they've got to partner with the university. Um, the university is not doing like a double blind medical study. What they're doing though is collecting data to determine you know, if it's a beverage, if it's a pre-roll, if it's an edible, whatever it is, there is no limit. So you submit your application and they go, yep, we love that. We love Jake's pre-roll. We're going to let that go into the market. Then the university starts tracking who purchases it. Um, how many milligrams is it? Did they have a great experience? Um, and in order to get into that pilot program, you've got to partner with one of the companies that has had approval in the pilot program. So in the right now in the two operational it would be the Netherlands or or Switzerland. And I think the German pilot program will probably start next year based on what I'm reading. Uh, it does look like they'll probably hit their their target dates. Um, now we all know it's cannabis and so um, trust but verify and I wouldn't invest a bunch of money based on dates. But um, if you want to get that pre-roll into the pilot program right now, I would be looking at the Netherlands, um, but mostly I'd be looking at Switzerland. If you want to get it into the medical program, then it's sort of like going through the FDA process. If it's a finished product where the, the pharmacist pulls it off the shelf, mm -hmm. um, I, I want you to think about this. You have to have, um, um, the product has to be approved. And that process is about 18 months from start to finish, more like two years. Of approval is very similar to getting a drug approved in the U.S. Uh, that's a prepackaged. But one of the workarounds that a lot of the people in Europe are are finding, and specifically in Germany, is uh, they're going through compounding pharmacies because the the fulcrum of that program is the prescription. So if the doctor prescribes a pre-roll, mm -hmm. um, then Pre-roll is allowed in the medical program for you because that would be your prescription. And then the doctor will send you to a compounding pharmacy that could actually make those pre-rolls for you. So right now there's a big bunch of activity with companies trying to get um, the CapEx spent for machinery and things in uh, these, these you know, larger compounding pharmacies. And the one thing I also want to say is we have kind of a dual pharmacy model in the US where we have like the CVS, Walgreens type of pharmacy. And then we also have the compounding pharmacies that make the medicine, you know, on site. 
uh, in Germany, they have some larger CVS type pharmacies where the pharmacists are actually doing a lot of the production in their clean rooms in the back because, I mean, think about it, they cut the middleman out. So there's a lot of expense saved. Uh, it's just, it's a different medical program over there. And the other yeah. thing I want you to realize too, is that people are, I, everybody has health insurance and I know it's hard for Americans to fathom, but everybody has health insurance. It is, uh, it's a considered a right. And yeah. Yeah. they're about a third of the people have private health insurance and about two thirds of the people have uh, government health insurance. Um, both of those insurances cover cannabis if the doctor prescribes it. And if you can get jump through the insurance hoops. Okay. And just to be clear, because compounding pharmacies is not a term I'm familiar with. It sounds like that is a pharmacy that makes the products on site. Yeah. So for example, in the U S there's lots of compounding pharmacies, every city's got them. And what that is, is for medicines that have to be specifically tailored to the individual. So they're based on your height, your weight, your, um, you know, allergies, whatever it is. So an example, great example would be, um, um, menopause medicine is based on, they're going to measure your particular hormonal makeup and your doctor might prescribe this particular amount of whatever hormone replacement therapy. And that's going to be tailored for you. You're not going to go just buy testosterone off the shelf. Uh, so compounding pharmacies do that. The other thing they do is a lot of chemotherapy. There's nuclear pharmacists that literally make that chemotherapy and it's for you. Um, so that's what compounding pharmacies are and over in, um, in Europe, it's no different. Okay, great. Thank yeah, you. And I, I'm just going to say right out of the gate, I have a, a cursory knowledge of what's going on in South America. I've got a couple of clients down there, but I don't consider myself a South American expert by any stretch. Okay. No, noted. Um, all right. So if you are, if you are a, want to get into CPG or medical, I mean, I guess it's kind of a, but if you talk about it from a brand perspective, um, there's, uh, you've already mentioned a handful of markets in Europe, but they all have slightly different rules. They have different cultures. Um, how do you go about identifying where you should start um, for your brand? And how do you advise people on that? Well, I think the first thing that to me seems very natural is that you should get your butt to an international conference on the continent that you want to do business in. Um, and then go start meeting people and talking to people and doing the research to you know, get into uh, the pharmacies, um, talk to the doc, well, if you can talk to the doctors, but more importantly, talk to the cannabis companies that are at those conferences and the people that are speaking at those conferences, because that's how you're really going to break in and figure out, you know, going through the expo hall. You left off. You know, yeah, talking to the people that are have booths and just start doing reconnaissance and networking, and pretty soon you'll you'll figure out whether what you have intended to do is viable or not. And in your experience, how have you found the reception of American brands or people that want to bring American brands to European countries? Uh, how's that gone? It's a good question. Um, what I'll say is that the Europeans love American brands. I mean, that's a broad sweeping general statement, but generally speaking, um, especially the California brands, the cookies, the jungle boys, like the true stoner culture of Europe knows who the brands are in America and really wants to see that high quality flower come over. Um, but they're growing some pretty great flower over in Europe as well. And there's the flip side where the OGs of the European cannabis markets, the, you know, the people that have been operating in Amsterdam, uh, in Barcelona, you know, they, they can take it or leave it. They're, they're not necessarily America files in that regard, but a lot of the business people really value the American experience because think about, um, you know, some of the operators in the space have 20, 
30 years of know-how and then you've got the operators in the legal market that can have you know 10 20 years of know-how and there's a lot of value in you know avoiding avoidable mistakes and so there is some desire to have that american know-how come over you know the the one thing i would caution is take a beat and get to know the culture maybe get to know a little bit of the language and before you come in as the hard charging i'm an american and i know what i'm doing um you know maybe figure out culturally the right way to approach um you know how you're going to enter that market yeah you, i think we mentioned uh earlier that you speak german um mm -hmm. i imagine that is incredibly helpful D most definitely most <laughs> definitely you know and i've i studied at the university of Wuppertal in 97 uh, I married a German. My kids are dual citizens. I've owned real estate there. I've lived there. I've been on the social, um, you know, health insurance. I understand how that culture works. Uh, I'm not going to tell you I'm an expert, just like, you know, anything else. Uh, I always think about or, you know, tell people to imagine saying I'm an expert in American culture and then you're in New York City and then you travel to where I live in Montana, and then you go to Texas, and then you go to New England, and then you go to California, and what is actually American culture. And there are some things that, you know, Germans have in common, Austrians, the German speaking countries, um, but there's a lot of differences as well. There's the dialects and the languages and the, the regional um, things, you know. So for example, in the US, if you were gonna make a product that was geared toward New Orleans, it might be Mardi Gras themed. If you go into DC, it might be, you know, government themed or Patriot themed. If you go to Detroit, it might be, you know, Detroit Rock City themed or something like that. You're gonna have that same type of difference over there. So the one size fits all approach doesn't work here. It doesn't work there unless your brand is a brand, a true brand that you know, speaks to the people themselves, regardless of, of their, you know, cultural orientation. And so the brands just continuing on with Germany for now, um, they're medical pharma brands, essentially, right? I don't imagine you see a Jungle Boys product on the pharmacy shelf, necessarily, right? So for, um, for the brands, that, that do exist um, in, in, in the medical really see brands on the shelf in the okay. pharmacies right now. That's not really how it works. So the brand is, it's kind of a wide open field right now from a, from a absolutely brand perspective. Absolutely. So if you're going to do, so the one thing I'll tell you is if you're going to do a focus on medical, which we should really be just calling pharma, um, you got to think about if you're going to do a focus on that market um, and go after that insurance, government insurance money, uh, then you really need to be thinking about pharma and how pharma works. And, you know, about four out of every five or six medications that are approved worldwide do have some sort of plant-based element to them, you know, come from some extract of some plant. So cannabis wouldn't be unique in that regard, but what you have to have is consistency. So if you're going to make the next Advil, uh, the Advil pill has to be the same, whether you take it in the US or you take it in Germany, and it has to be patentable and it has to be protectable and the formulation has to be protectable, but it has to be consistent. So your API, your active pharmaceutical ingredient, if that is a cannabinoid, that cannabinoid has to be grown to that level of replication and consistency that would be expected at a pharmaceutical level. It's gotta be grown in a pharmaceutical um, approved plant. So you, the EU GMP um, is the level in the EU. And if you wanna go one step higher where you don't have to get approvals from all the different places, you can go to the Swiss, uh, th that Swiss pharmaceutical um, level is approved pretty much for everyone worldwide, it's the highest level of certification you can get. 
So those Swiss pharmaceutical companies that are in the cannabinoid space are really thinking about um, replicable API, getting patents on genetics, fingerprinting genetics. And the other thing I'll tell you, the, the one I would say nugget that people should be thinking about is if you've got a really um, amazing strain uh, and you can partner with a European you know, company like Bedrocan or some of the, the bigger companies and you can get that strain fingerprinted and protected in Europe, that's allowed right now. In America, it's not because cannabis is federally illegal. So you cannot get a federal patent or trademark on anything cannabis. It's possible. I know there's going to be people going, yes, you can. It's really difficult. And it's it's not just matter of course business in the US. It's matter of course business in Europe. But Europe is party to a treaty that those, those patents and those trademarks in Europe do actually apply to the US or 72 countries in that treaty. So one advantage would be to go get that plant and that genetic fingerprinted in Europe in anticipation of federal legalization because then they will, you'll automatically have it here. You'll have to still do some paperwork here, but you will have what you need, which is the first commercialization. You'll have the date of the protection that's subject to an American treaty. It's gonna give you a big leg up on that genetic footprint. Is that something that you have uh, worked with people to help them do that? I'm currently working with people doing that right now. And it's, um, you know, it's a big race. It's a race for sure. Yeah, it sounds like mm -hmm. it. How long does that process take? Um, anywhere from six months to two years, depending on, you know, one of the things people also don't realize is a lot, a lot of times the genetics aren't clean. Uh, so you really want to make sure that that, that, phenotype is clean and there are um, companies that can you know clean that up if you've got systemic problems and so you want to have that like really super clean phenotype that you go fingerprint so the process in the beginning is making sure that what you've got is what you think it is and, and, you say and you'd be surprised how many people I'm sorry. Uh, so you said surprised how many people uh, think don't, that don't have what they think they have. And, yeah. um, and it actually happened to me. Muggs and I um, got some genetics from my dad way back, like 12 years ago. And we wanted to make a, a, a brand out of it. We were, you know, we actually made a brand out of it. We thought it was Jamaican lamb's bread. We thought it was straight from Bob Marley's farm. And it was this big you know, family lore. My uncle went to Jamaica and got these seeds and blah, blah, blah. And then when we had the, <laughs> the, the genetic testing done, it was actually a cross of Jamaican lamb's bread and granddaddy purple. Well, you know, my dad, my uncle had been growing those two plants in the same room for probably 20 years and just cloning, 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 cloning. Well, pretty soon, you know, they all morphed into each other and we didn't, we didn't know what we were doing. <laughs> so yeah. You know, but it happens a lot. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, okay, so uh, we do have a we do have a Q and A section, and uh, feel free to drop questions in. We do have a question from someone, which is, Jamie, can you recommend an auditor for EU certification? But before you answer that question, describe exactly what that is for everyone. They want an auditor for EU certification. To come into your come into your facility and get EU GMP is that what you're referring to? We'll see if we get a uh, a, res a response to the question of the question. Um, until that comes in, though. Okay. Oh, I see. Someone has raised their hand. No. Oh, Oops. No, I've raised my own hand. Okay, hold on. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, if you can type your message in the Q&A, oh, let's see here. I don't, I don't, uh, we haven't done hand raising before in these. Usually people type their answers in here. Uh, let's see. Oh, here. I think I, I don't, I have, don't, oh, Tabitha Fritz. What advantages, if any, do Canadian companies have over U.S.-based companies with regard to entering the U European market? 
Oh, that's that's easy. Um, Canada is federally legal and allows export. And in the U.S., if you are trying to export uh, THC containing product, you are committing a federal crime. So you can't you can't export out of the U.S. into Europe. So Canadians can they can export to Europe and Australia, Israel. Uh, so the Canadian companies have a huge advantage that way. That yeah, not going to jail. That's a that's a good one. That's a big big advantage. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then see. I just I'll answer the EU compliance question. What I'll tell you is, um, if you are going to, you know, if it depends on what country you're going to, but if you were going to go, um, just say just try to do broad EU, you literally could Google EU compliance. And when you pull up the companies that are going to be there, if they are operating out of the EU, I'm going to make a broad sweeping general statement, but I would tell you that you're going to find the ones that have the wherewithal to get their websites translated into English and available for your search in an, on an American ISP, um, you're, you're going to be dealing with a good company. And the one thing I talk about all the time, you know, just anecdotally to my friends is that the way the, uh, European education system works, you don't really have people fall through the cracks the way they do here, because we have this one size fits all linear education approach where it is based on the number of hours your butt's in a In the fourth grade, they're gonna separate you and there's three finishing school levels. There's uh, in Germany, for example, it's called something different in all of the other countries, but they're all pretty similar. It's Hauptschule, main school, Realschule, uh, real school, and then um, gymnasium, which basically mean, uh, basically means high school or it's college prep. So what they, what they do is they take kids and they figure out, you know, are they designed to be a scholar? If so, they'll send them to the college prep track. Um, if they're not really sure they're educationally sound, uh, read well, don't struggle. Um, they'll put them in the Realschule track, but in the Hauptschule track, it's the track where you know, there are kids who do well with their hands, uh, who are mechanically inclined, who uh, want to touch things rather than read about them or hear about them. And, you know, it's based on the different intelligences that we have. And so what will happen is uh, you might you'll have a bus driver. You'll go buy tickets at the train station. You'll go buy a plant at the garden center. And in America, it's people who end up in those jobs. But in Europe, it's people who trained for those jobs. And so the person who's working at the plant center is going to tell you the Latin name of the plant, the best way to take care of it. They're going to know everything about every plant that they're selling. You're going to get good information there. And so I would just generally say when I'm in Europe and I'm talking to somebody, I'm pretty much going to take it to the bank. Where conversely, if I'm in Lowe's or Home Depot and I say, do you have this widget? And they go, nope, we don't carry that. I'm like, I'm going to go look for myself because you're probably not giving me good information. And then usually I go find the widget and, um, you know, life moves on. So that just, just doesn't happen over there. So I think yep. you're safe. Short answer, you're safe with a Google search. Good enough. And then, All right. Is it worth trying to get novel food certification in the EU or... Is it, as some suggest, a scheme by certain pharma companies to control the market? Is it possible to get cannabis into the European market as a food ingredient? Um, that's a great question, Brandon. So I went through the novel food process when I worked at Bang. Um, you know, or I, I should, you know, clarify that and say I attempted to get our CBD chocolate in through the novel foods process. And this would have been, this is pre, pre-COVID. Uh, right now, the there are companies that have registration numbers in the novel foods program but the novel foods program isn't a fully baked uh i guess pun intended um it isn't a fully baked program yet 
so I would say no. I mean, the one side is there's opportunity. If you can get it done and you're willing to spend that money, absolutely, um, you would have a leg up on everybody else and have that first mark mover status. But what you're not going to know is when is that process going to be sort of finalized because it's not finalized yet. And right now I would tell you, I wouldn't do it. And this is the main reason why. The EU is no joke when it comes to food for European citizens. They don't allow GMOs in their food, um, good or bad. Uh, there's some GMOs that people you know, think are wonderful. They're just flat not allowed there. They don't have the level of preservatives and things in their food that we have here. So where in America, you go to Costco and you buy a two week or three week supply of food or a one month supply of food and that bread on your, uh, in your bread box lasts for two weeks, that bread's turning moldy in two days in Europe. They just don't have the same level of crap in their food that we have in ours. Our, our FDA allows just about anything. Uh, their food um, regulation agencies don't let just about anything through. So you've got to be really... I'd be smart and careful about it. I would make sure that I've hired a consultant. Uh, I would make sure that that consultant has had success um, getting things through the novel foods. And I think the the short answer for me is I would say I wouldn't do it yet. I, I just wouldn't do it. You're, you're barking up the wrong tree uh, until they get a little farther along in the regulations. Let's... Uh dig in a little more on regulations and legal in general. Um, you know, we have, we have our own compliance department, the media gel, because we have to do advertising and there's all kinds of different laws everywhere. And as I mentioned, we're running ads now in the UK. We've had some advertisers who want to do work in Thailand, which was mm -hmm. an interesting legal. I mean, we have an in-house lawyer that just researches all of this at this point. Um, but frequently what we found is um, like in Thailand, the laws are both vague and contradictory, right? right? So there's like this law over here says you can do it. This one says you can't. Then there's some vague classification of like, what does this, this product even fall into? Where can you advertise it? Where can you not? Um, how do you figure out the right legal people to work with? Or do you have a network of legal experts in each country you work with? How, how do you approach that? I do. I have a pretty good network everywhere. Um, and in Thailand, I've got, I've got a couple of people I actually sit on the advisory board of a, um, a company that went from, uh, Sacramento to Thailand. And, um, that's been a, that's been a learning process. Uh, there's a lot of opportunity over there. Um, for sure. It's obviously it's a tourist market because, you know, the price per gram of cannabis in Thailand uh, the locals couldn't afford it, right? So that's the, what I was researching. It didn't seem like it was real. I was like, wait, that seems really high. Yeah, it's high. And the, and the other thing that um, I think is kind of comical is a lot of the cannabis that's being sold in Thailand right now actually sat in a shipping container uh, for a year, 14 months. It's moldy, it's dry, it's horrible. And they're charging, you know, $10 a gram and the tourists are paying for it. So you know, the people that are selling it are making great money. And at some point that's going to dry up, uh, pun intended. Um, but the opportunity going on that, on that example with your marketing rules, whenever you've got vagueness and contradiction, I say you have opportunity to exploit that. Um, where, where you run into trouble go, goes back to that cultural question uh, where you definitely need to have a local, um, you know, and maybe getting more than one opinion. And the one thing I also find in those, um, those small Asian countries and in the small Caribbean countries, everybody is somehow tied to the prime minister or my, my uncle's brother's cousin is, you know, connected to the general, or you're going to get all that kind of stuff. And, it's hard to really filter through what's real. And I mean, it's all basically real, but what matters 
so what I what I do is um, on the ground talk to different people that have different things to say and then try to find that common thread. And eventually the people who are really running uh, the cannabis industry on the legal side, both the legal and the illicit side will, will come forward. You'll figure out who they are. And then what you will also figure out is it's probably the people running the illicit side who have control of the government. And uh, those are the people you need to get their blessing before you worry about the government. So depending on what country it is, um, you really have to get steeped in that culture. That's, uh, that's helpful. Uh, it's helpful, but also not helpful in the sense that uh, there's no, there's no one rule. All the countries are different. Um, and what you were just explaining in some of the smaller countries and like the Caribbean, Southeast Asia, sounds very different than what is happening in Germany, right? Like almost like polar opposites. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's, that's what I think makes it fun. You know, when I was working at Bang, I did that on a smaller level where I had to figure out, you know, what, what's the rule in New Mexico? What's the rule in California? What's the rule in Canada? And then try to take the product that we had and make it consistent across all those different rules, the packaging, we wanted it to look a little bit um, similar, exactly similar where we could in some places we couldn't. And so, you know, I really, I think I put my 10,000 hours in, in that, in that regard. And what I've figured out is you can't really do any of it sitting on the phone or on a computer. You got to, you know, get your butt on an airplane, go to that location talk to people, go to the conferences, go to the dispensaries. Um, you really got to touch it, taste it, feel it, um, and be in learning mode rather than knowing mode. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe we could spend a little bit of time talking. I was asking you kind of specific questions that I, you know, occurred to me. I'm sure there's a lot of things that haven't, I haven't even thought of to ask. Um, we didn't touch on this earlier, but you do have your your current business, which is New Holland Group. And maybe you can talk a little bit about what you do for people. And then I'll probably have some more questions for you. Yeah, love to. Um, New Holland Group is an international consultancy um, that I started, you know, after I left Bang. I really intended to take a break and I was thinking about getting back into real estate, which is what I did before cannabis. And then I just had a couple of people call me and say, Hey, would you, you, now that you're not working, would you come help me do this to help me do that? And, um, and then the, the phone calls, like, I still don't have a website yet. I don't have a, a social media presence because I haven't needed that yet. I've, I mean, it's just been word of mouth and the business has grown, you know, beyond what I, actually anticipated. And what I'm doing um, is I've assembled a team, I would call it of um, a team of experts in different areas of operation from, you know, soup to nuts, seed to shelf. Uh, so I have experts that, you know, work in cultivation and pheno hunting, and I have experts that work in, you know, I have one on my team that is an absolute encyclopedic expert on all things New York. Uh, because that's going to be a huge market and that New England market, um, because very similar to the European market, because it's very dense in population, it doesn't require a lot of transportation to get product moved. When, when you think about in California, that giant landmass from San Diego to Sacramento or to San Francisco, you, you've got a lot of in between and those markets are very different. It's like five different countries, California. Um, but when you're up in New York, um, you know, hopping from borough to borough is, is a snap. I, I like people to understand Germany has 85 million people in a space about the size of Oregon. And so, to, you know, put that in perspective, you can, and then you've got all the countries around it. So you can move product, uh, really a lot of product in a very short amount of time. So it makes distribution simple. So what I'm doing is helping people that are interested in moving across borders, people who are interested in taking their brands 
into other countries. Uh, that's part of what I do. Um, a lot of what I'm doing is business strategy. I'm helping C-suites um, think about what to do first. You know, what is really recognizing what is their low-hanging fruit? Because a lot of time you can't see the forest for the trees within your organization. Um, so I do a lot of that strategic work with companies. Um, but what I've done a lot of um, primarily, there's, it seems like every Oh, just, all right. So it seems like everybody's fundraising and I do a lot of that, I would say cultural translation where they're trying to speak to investors in the US and speak to investors in Germany, uh, speak to investors in the UK. And you really do need, there's some things you gotta have across investor culture. Um, that I find a lot of companies just don't understand about raising money. So I'm doing a lot of capital raising advising, which, um, which I actually find really fun. I'm helping people with their decks. Um, I have a lot of clients I'm helping with their decks and, you know, I'll just for the audience, I'll tell you the one big takeaway that from working for the last year with a lot of companies raising money that, they the mistake that they make one is they will have a deck that says this is who we are this is what we're doing this is our product we need five million dollars because we're going to buy machines or we're going to do this or we're going to do that um and as an investor that's you saying everything about who you are what you want and what you need what i care about as an investor is I'm going to give you money and how am I going to get it back? And so I really want people to shift the paradigm and speak as though they were the investor listening to the material because the investor cares more about what's in it for them than they care about what's in it for you. And there is a place where those two things intersect and that's where the magic happens. So if you've identified a problem in a market or a niche or a hole and you're solving it, and your solution is going to make you $3 a widget, and you have the capacity to move 8 million widgets in a month, that's a $24 million proposal. And if it's only going to cost you 500 grand to make that 8 million, investors understand math. But a lot of times what would happen is that company wouldn't even talk about the widget, and they wouldn't talk about all that. It's not For them, that's, yeah, whatever. They don't care. That's not what's exciting to them. You got to talk about what's exciting to the investor. And I can tell you, I have yet to receive a deck that does that well, where I'm like, oh, you don't need me because you, you're telling the investor everything they need to know. You got to tell the investor what's in it for them. That's my tidbit that I'll give to the audience for free. <laughs> there you go. The first, yeah. first pitch. Uh, so so you, it sounds like you're dealing with the companies at kind of all stages from very like all I have is an idea or a strain or whatever it is in, in a deck that needs to be worked on. Um, what are some of the organizations you're working with that are, or are you working with companies that are at a larger scale and trying oh, to solve yeah. a different set than just fundraising? Yeah, I have some very large clients and a lot of, you know, I've got a couple of large investment banks that I work for that are trying to, you know, start finding that next purely GTI over in Europe. Um, there's just a lot of exploratory work going on. So I'm, I'm leaving a week from Saturday. I'll be gone for a month. Uh, there's a lot of rumors that France is heating up. So I'm going to spend um, a couple of weeks in France. I'm doing a um, keynoting a conference in Belgium. Um, in Brussels. And the interesting thing about that is yesterday, the prime minister, excuse me, the minister of health of Belgium uh, just called out the parliament and said, we got to do something. They've always been very conservative on cannabis. So it was kind of a surprise, but they're saying, you know, we've got to stop the hypocrisy. Those were his exact words. Um, so what you're starting to see is loosening and movement in all of the EU countries because uh, let's face it. I mean, Germany is the largest economy in Europe. And when Germany does go wreck, 
just like what was published today in it was either the green It was either market report or MJ Biz, but they talked about how the border sales are so are huge for the MSOs and for other uh, operators. They've been able to measure, uh, like in Montana, we're bordered by Idaho, um, Wyoming, and the Dakotas. All illegal markets, no adult use, but all the dispensaries right on those borders are are doing well that's going to be true in Europe as well. So what the countries are understanding is if they don't get in, a lot of their dollars are going to come into the German economy. So they're really, you're going to see that whole market heat up. Yeah. You'd think they'd want to move ahead of Germany if they could, if there's, you know, more nimble. Uh, but I, 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 we see the same thing, right? So we work with dispensaries all over the country and you've got a lot of dispensaries right on the border of Michigan um, that do pretty well. Um, you yep. see that in other states as well. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So do you have designs on uh, bringing media gel into Europe outside of the UK? Yeah. So, you know, what we the stuff we're doing in the UK is um, is more on the hemp based products that are, you know, sort of e-com legal. Um, for us, it's been a matter of waiting for there to be products to advertise, right? Or brands to advertise. Um, and And so... That's kind of what you know, like Spain has clubs, but technically, although you could they do advertise, but it's not technically legal to advertise there. Um, we one of our like principles as a business is, is that is compliance is sort of like a foundational thing for us. So we help all of our advertisers make sure that they're doing things correctly. So while they should may- target those pilot program, you know, the people that have those pilot program licenses, because I think that's a uh, couple of the larger brands. I mean, when you think about the largest brands in cannabis, I have a few of them as clients and they're looking at those pilot programs because that's where you're going to build brand loyalty from the get-go because you're going to get on those adult use shelves and people are going to cross those borders and they are going to have a limited amount of brands. Uh, a lot of them will be European but if, if you've got the budget and the wherewithal to get your brand on a shelf in Switzerland or the Netherlands, the key to that, I would say, is making sure that your SOPs are super tight, um, that your packaging is compliant, that you're ready so that when you come, that pilot program uh, license holder doesn't have a lot of heavy lift. Uh, if you make it easy for them, there's, they're going to have no reason to say no to you. Um, so, you know, on that regard where you know how to market uh, American brands, you know, or you've already probably got some of these larger brand clients, um, you know, that that's where I would recommend that you start. That brings up a, a here's a question that I have now. Um, in the U.S., generally, the the consumer has to buy from a dispensary. There are some direct just direct consumer things that are happening, but largely the the channel is consumer goes to dispensary, dispensary gets product from manufacturer or distributor. But that creates an interesting marketing dynamic for brands because they like so a lot of what, when we run advertising, it's we're doing a lot of measurement of of return on ad spend. So like what are people buying? But if you're a brand and you're funding the advertising budget, you're going to be sending someone to a destination that has other people's products. And right. we, and we do, we do co-marketing campaigns, right? Where we work with a brand, work with a particular retailer and it's, you know, get this product at this place. Um, and it works well. However, when consumers go into a market, they generally buy stuff from multiple brands, which is fine. But when you're trying to measure as everyone's budgets are very tight, when you're trying to measure your marketing budget in terms of dollars back on your investment in, and some of those dollars are going somewhere else, um, it makes it, it's a little bit of a psychological uh, hurdle to get over, even though the, the marketing itself is effective. So I guess my question is, is for these pilot programs, are there, is it the same thing where you have a, a, a funnel, basically the product has to go through a licensed dispensary to get the product, to buy it? In um, the Netherlands and Switzerland, yes. 
in Germany, it's really interesting. The proposed pilot program, they, they're calling them uh, social clubs, but we automatically think of what's going on in Barcelona, you know, where you're going into Choco and it's a quasi coffee house dispensary thing. It's, you know, similar in, in Amsterdam. Um, no, it's not that. So in Germany, what it is, is it's a co-op. Imagine a co-op grocery store where mm -hmm. you've got a couple of co-op members that run it and you're a member and you buy at that co-op. So the, the way they've proposed the rules and the rules aren't finalized yet, they're allowing the co-ops to have 500 members capped. And if you're a member of co-op A, you can't be a member of any other co-op. Uh, and that is not a social like consumption situation. That is simply where you are allowed to go buy your adult use cannabis. You don't have to have a medical recommendation, Okay. but you can only buy from that medical or excuse me, from that uh, social club. So automatically I, I have some friends over in Germany that are starting their, even though the rules aren't out yet, they're, you know, getting ready to start a social club in their particular town, um, apply for that license, you know, is the minute the portal opens. And one of the things that we've seen is that what's accompanying that set of rules is, um, decriminalization. So you're allowed to possess cannabis. There's a couple of problems with that. They have, I can't remember the number, but I think it's like 20 grams, uh, is allowed, but 21 grams, you go to jail for three years. So, uh, in, you know, the question is, are the police going to actually go have a scale and weigh, do you have 20 grams or 21 grams? And then are they going to send you to jail and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. So there's been a lot of feedback on those proposed rules. Um, but here's the point. You have a captive audience now, uh, because if you're, what I, what I predict is that these social clubs, you'll have a bunch of them selling flour. You'll have a bunch of them selling pre-rolls. You'll have a bunch of them selling edibles. Um, right now, edibles aren't in the mix, but you know, probably down the road, they will come. And then what's going to happen is uh, because they're not allowed to wholesale back and forth to each other. So your club stuff is all you're allowed to have, but because it's decriminalized, there is nothing stopping you from trading with the member of another club. And I predict it'll be kind of like what I remember in Oregon back in like 2014, 15, where you are selling the bag and giving the cannabis for free or selling the lighter and giving the cannabis for free. They'll be all, they'll find the workarounds. I mean, cannabis consumers are very creative and I'm sure it'll all be fine. But for your standpoint, you've got a, captive audience. So if you become the marketing arm for social club A, B, C, and D, I see where you could be highly effective helping those, that list of 500, 500, 500, 500 know about each other and facilitate all that nonsense that's going to go on until they, until the government figures out that that rule isn't going to work. Yeah, that's creates really interesting dynamics. You know, the thing that we focused on the a lot this year and into next year is we just now we license our entire marketing platform to other agencies or in this case potentially like one of these social clubs where we've done this with some brands as well. Like, okay, here's your marketing distribution platform. You can have your brand, you can have all 10 of your retailers in the system, and then you can be running marketing campaigns with them and you can manage all of that. Um, so yeah, that does create some interesting opportunities. I'm very curious to see when, when Germany is going to open up, but I also, I'll, I'll, um, I'll follow up with you on some of these, uh, pilot programs because, you know, our, our advertising supply partners, a lot of them are actually from Europe. When we first started running digital marketing in like 2018, 2019, none of the U S companies would, would accept the ads. And so we actually found European ad networks that still service the United States audience um, was, and so we still have a lot of that. And so we have a tremendous uh, inventory available on the advertising side in, in Europe. And yeah, it's all like explicitly approved for cannabis as long as it's legal. Yeah, that's amazing. And I think in the Netherlands and Switzerland specifically, you also would have a pretty decent market with those pilot programs. 
um, you know, because the coffee houses in the Netherlands, they got to get the word out. So I, I do think that you would have a market there um, and you'd be a first mover for sure. As long as you've got your um, compliance ducks in a row, which is your guys' specialty. So I see um, a lot yep. of opportunity for media gel in Europe. Well, I appreciate that. Mm -hmm. um, we're here at the top of the hour. Jamie, I want to thank you for your time. Do you have any uh, last topics or things that, that you want to leave anyone with that we didn't cover already? No, just uh, if you have questions about European expansion, um, feel free to contact the New Holland Group. Um, you'll find me on LinkedIn. That's the easiest place to find me. One of these days, I'm going to get a website built. Yeah, when you need to. I mean, the, the good news about not having a website is you probably get less spam. Facts. So, um, Facts. you know, mm -hmm. there's, there's a lot of that. And now there's like all the AI spam bots that, that try to like analyze who you are. And I get all these things that like talk about like the college that you went to. They like start to bring something up from that and, and like the email subject line. Yeah. Um, yeah, they're getting, they're I, getting smart, but they're also easy to recognize. Yeah, it is. You know, I think right I think what'll happen is that authentic communication will have more value, which that's been on the decline, you know, the whole everyone trapped in their phone. I, I think we're gonna as humans start valuing authentic communication more. So I think that's the upside of AI. All right. I like that. I like the optimism. Mm -hmm. Um all right. Well, thanks again, Jamie. You can find yeah. Jamie on on LinkedIn. Um, appreciate your time. This has been Cannabis Marketing Live. I'm Jake Litke, CEO of MediaGel, and we are signing off for the week. Thank you. Thanks.